10 seconds, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, ignition. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Right Stuff. Sounds dangerous. It is. Very dangerous. Very. Count me in. A Podbean backer review chosen by Clark Fisher. He's a good guy. Mm -hmm. He's real philosophical. Hosted by Justin. Picks a special kind of man to volunteer for a suicide mission. Jacob. You know, I'm a fearless man, but I'm scared to death of you. And Stuart. Whether we like it or not, we're public figures. Whether we deserve it or not, People are going to look up to us. We have got a tremendous responsibility here. This podcast will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Fucking A, Bubba. That's right. Exactly. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, y'all. Never go again. Today, we are discussing The Right Stuff, starring Sam Shepard, Ed Harris, Scott Glenn, Dennis Quaid, Fred Ward, and Barbara Hershey. Written and directed by Philip Kaufman. This is the host that always has an extra stick of beech nut, Justin. <laughs> and Stuart. And this is the hot dog man himself, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> Not airplane hot dog stuff, though. More just like the food. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel ya. So here we are on the main feed. I know that we oftentimes do one-offs and maybe forgotten gyms. It's a common thing that on Fridays, every month, for patrons, we dig up movies we like or movies that have been requested, and we review them. But we're here on the main feed for once because we're kind of doing, well, I don't know if it's really a retrospective, but I've been really inspired lately. Ever since Captain Kirk actually went to space, it suddenly feels relevant again to think about the space program. And one of our patrons donated to hear us talk about the movie that is the history, I think, of the first manned space flight, the right stuff. And he's with us today. Clark, you've been with us for a while. Patrons already know you. You donated for us to talk about, well, lots of different things. We, the bodybuilding documentary, Pumping Iron, Arnold's first forays in the movies, or at least his first good movie. And just last month, we covered Arrival, a sci-fi oddity that was connected with Dune, same director. Why did you want us to cover the right stuff? Well, this movie has always really spoken to me because when I was in elementary school was when the Mercury program was going. I was in school when we were all gathered around the TVs watching this stuff. It was just exciting and you felt like you were living history. And then later on, I was in the Air Force. So this is a blend of things that are really near and dear to my heart. That's curious because I feel like this movie on one hand is very pro-military and yet it also has this sort of snarky sensibility. Oh, I, I've got questions about what the aims of this film is. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, yeah, not sure what it's going for. Let me put it this way. It highlights America's great successes in space and its abject failures in equal spotlight glow. I feel like both are given their full due here. And yeah, it's interesting that you're saying that you are a military man. Does it feel like this movie is patriotic or complicated in its look at the space program? Well, I think it's both. I was thinking about how I would describe it. But what you've got is this movie that's about courage and idealism, the right stuff, told 
in a deeply Tom Wolf mm. kind of way. It's a yeah. really interesting blend, and I think it's very true. You see all the absurdity of all the public relations stuff going on and the stuff NASA's trying to do for the make these guys perfect, even though, of course, they weren't. And, um, and again, it's just a really cool blend, I think. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with that. I did not see this movie when it came out, and I would say... I'm of a generation, maybe one beyond you, where I was kind of cynical about the space program. I came of age and Star Wars was in movie theaters. So, like, there was nothing NASA could do to compete with that, right? Yeah, my biggest memory of NASA is the Challenger explosion, like seeing that in school. Yeah. Exactly so. It felt like they weren't doing anything but putting up probes and satellites for a long time. And I wanted, you know, I wanted flying cars. I wanted lasers. I wanted to go back to the moon, at least. Let's go to Mars. Let's really do what I'm seeing. You know, 2001 is not that far away. We're supposed to have hotels in space. Where is that stuff? You're right. When the Challenger happened, it's the one-two punch of the Challenger and I think the ending of the Cold War happened both around the same time that really made it feel like the space program just all the air went out of that balloon and it just they stopped doing anything for a while it really felt like this relic yeah this era really did clear the runway for our era where we were just kind of nonchalant about all this stuff where it's like yeah space whatever we've been there been we've been to the moon we're watching movies where we're going to other galaxies but i can see where this era could really hold some nostalgic value for people who lived through it because it seemed like a very exciting time. It had cultural impacts across the globe. And I mean, again, the question that they'd asked, what is the right stuff for an astronaut? I mean, now we would think, well, of course, that's a job you can go for. That's a thing that you can go to space camp. You can go down to Louisiana. You can train for this thing. But back at the inception, when they're trying to figure this all out, what are your qualifications, was a curious existential crisis to ask. And I have to say, as an adult, coming back to this, I never would watch it as a kid. Because again, if the choice was Return of the Jedi or this movie, (laughs) there's just no competition. I'm going to watch the fun one. I'm going to watch Jabba the Hutt. But I did catch this movie just earlier this summer. I did not know, Clark, that you had donated for it when I watched it. I probably would have waited. But I really did enjoy, as you've highlighted, it's dual ideas about patriotism and cynicism, that it could be both at the same time, and that it was very surprising. What seemed like a very rote history lesson actually was full of lots of bumps in the road that shocked me. Well, you got to love the scene with Johnson kicking the car. <laughs> <laughs> Anything with Johnson is quite yeah. amusing. Yeah, that He's quite a character. I'll agree with you, Stuart. Like, my dad owned this. He had the double VHS set of the right stuff. I never watched it as a kid, though. I remember I'd seen maybe a brief moment when you see Cooper's wife, she hears a big boom and goes outside and you see that plume of smoke and the kids playing in the yard and it cuts to a funeral. I'm like, nope, this is what I want to watch, like death and funerals. So yeah, this is my first time ever watching the right stuff. It's like been on a list of films to watch forever. So I'm glad to have a chance now. Yeah, same boat. You know, if this is one that the family rented one night, I probably fell asleep because, I mean, to 11, 12-year-old me, probably was just a snooze fest at the time. But yeah, this is my first time sitting down as an adult to watch this. My curiosity is, is even though I don't think I've ever really fully watched it, it's always a movie that I've known of. Like, you say the right stuff. That's a movie our generation knows. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I have to make the reference since Arnie isn't here. Armageddon, like, there is that homage to the right stuff. Like, I knew enough about this movie to get that joke. 
I've never seen that movie. I know, Stuart. One day. One day. <laughs> I know. I'm waiting for that. It's happening. I know just one day that somehow that will come together. But yeah, you know, I guess I was thinking, I guess all my references at the time certainly would be, you know, even James Bond, Moonraker at this point, like he was doing more exciting things in space. This one looked more heavy. You know, it was three hours. And in the 80s, that felt like a long movie. Nowadays, that's half a season of a Disney Plus show. <laughs> yeah. And this has become a, a season of Disney Plus that I have seen. And I also went back and read the book. I did the whole thing because I was so inspired by my first watching. I'm like, oh, I know I'm going to love this movie. I'm so glad we're going to talk about this movie. But I haven't read the book. So I did go and I just an endorsement for that. It is largely following the same beats as this movie, but you've really got to appreciate Tom Wolfe as a writer. I really think that there's something you could never capture in a movie is his pro style, his way of turning history into like really like gory. I was surprising sometimes how graphic he would describe some of these failures and beheadings and what have you, but he can really create a language that gets you very excited about the things that are happening. And if you've been worried about history lessons and what you had to read in high school, I would say, don't think about that. This is a very entertaining, ripping yarn would be the words that come to mind. Does it have the same sense of this film where it could be really patriotic at times and then really cynical? Does it go back and forth like this? Yeah, well, I think that Wolf wanted to peel back the propaganda. You know, what had been presented to the public in the 60s, obviously, and I think largely is still the story, is one of human triumph. Of, yes, we there was trial and error, but in the end, American might and will and determination managed to do the impossible, or at least to do what the Russians were doing a few weeks before us. And we kept matching them in that Cold War race. And so there was a patriotic need to believe in heroes and the idealism of it. I think enough time had passed that when this book is written, you know, Tom Wolfe is researching and writing it in the late 70s, a cynical decade for sure about all things, but particularly the American government. I think there's definitely a snark and a pushback. The cynicism is there in the prose, maybe not always in the same way, but there is comedy in the follies of the space program that, yes, this movie is a good adaptation of the spirit of the book, I would say. That feels like the right instinct to go with for this subject material, especially at the time, you know? So I guess my question is, is, is there more of the space race than the movie shows in the book, you know, between Russia and the U.S.? Because I feel like the movie, I mean, we'll get into it, but I feel like the movie kind of montages past some of that. Yeah, the thing is, I always thought, even in watching it a few months ago, I was like, oh, yeah, they get to the moon in this, right? No, no, nope. this is just the Mercury program. It is just really about putting a man in orbit, which, frankly, again, that feels small. I mean, like, this movie is even going to be about that. I'm even going to make the argument this movie is about people always seeing their great accomplishments diminished by the next guy. And so that's part of the human story of this is watching these really cool heroes suddenly be knocked off their pedestal and how they process and deal with that is a, a major theme of this that I really am impressed by. I would say you would know more of the stories of all seven of the astronauts than you're going to know. I feel like this movie will focus on four of the seven. 
Yeah, there were some astronauts I swore were going to die like in accidents because I'm like, I've never heard of that person. And of course they do, but later, not during the Mercury program. We'll talk about all of that. I'll try to point out where there are additional stories or, or things of interest. And of course, this is history. So it's not even what's in that book. There's things that we now know about things that were going on that Tom Wolf didn't uncover, namely about the Grisham failed landing and splashdown, whether or not he hit that button, uh, more research has come to light about that. So I'll, I'll share where it's necessary, the difference. But I just want to point out, this movie was made in the rah-rah 80s. This thing came out in 1983, and I think it would have been very easy for them to jettison all that Tom Wolf cynicism and just say, "Lo, this is about, you know, Top Gun was made just a few years after that. You could just make this a patriotic, wave the flag, look at how great we are as a country kind of movie. And I think it could have been that way. I think it started out being that way. The original scripts left out Chuck Yeager, and the movie was going to be directed by the guy that did Rocky. I mean, I think... That that was the original intent. We're going to hand it to a guy that makes a movie that's very inspirational, play that fanfare kind of song, make people feel good. Because in the 80s, we weren't trying to feel what we were, all that bad vibes, Vietnam era stuff. We weren't trying to feel that. So I do think it's just kind of remarkable. It's only really because it lands in the lap of Philip Kaufman, who is probably writing very high. He wrote the script for Raiders of the Lost Ark. He is largely credited for the reason why that story is so fun and why all the other Indiana Jones movies are not as good. Yeah, I, I did have to look up Philip Kaufman because with the tone and the sense of humor in this film, I'm like, is this Charlie Kaufman's dad writing this? But no, it's the guy who wrote Indiana Jones and he did that 70s remake of, Invading, of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I, you know, I haven't seen The Unbearable Lightness of Being, but I knew one of his other films. Yeah, I think that he is a very intelligent adapter of other people's works. And I do think that, yeah, at least his early stuff, he just never had a big hit. What he was always waiting for in the wings, and this movie wasn't it, was the chance to show that he could be a powerhouse like Spielberg. But yeah, while he made this movie, it was very expensive for 80s money. I think it was 17, 18, almost $20 million. We laugh at that now. That's the budget of an episode of Game of Thrones. But back then, this would have been an extremely expensive proposition. And I think studios would have wanted it to be more patriotic, more inspiring, less down on the American failures that are on display. Stuart, I think you're onto something there because as part of watching this, I always try to go back and try to find original theatrical trailers for older movies like this to kind of see what the vibe was at the time. And the tagline in the trailer that they showed for this literally is patriotic beyond question. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how they were trying to sell this. I got lots of questions, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's that, but it is interesting. I also think they were hoping to write high on Oscars. This is the kind of movie that did very well based on the fact that critics told you. They gave you permission that you were going to be rewarded for plunking your butt down for a three-hour movie. That was always a heavy proposition. There was a bunch of those in the 80s. But, like, if Gandhi wins Best Picture, okay, I'll sit through the three-hour thing and say it was good. You know, Last Emperor, you need that Oscar boost. And this did get a lot of those nominations it even won some of the technical awards yeah it got all technical awards but it yeah it did not ever really catch fire with the audience it didn't make its money back and i think it's probably why we didn't get a sequel that would have gone on to tell this story in this style all the way to the moon it does feel like the opening chapter of a longer story because of course it is the space race is much bigger than the mercury program by 
only focusing on these years, it becomes about something else, I think. Well, there's that Ryan Gosling movie that came out a few years ago, The First Man. Yeah, First Man, eh, not great. (laughs) It's okay. Well, Stuart, tell us how we get up to orbit around the Earth. Give us the plot of The Right Stuff. Well, The Right Stuff chronicles the dawn of the space race as America struggles to put a man into orbit after Russia launches the satellite Sputnik in 1957. But what qualifies one to be an astronaut besides bravery and or recklessness? President Eisenhower insists on culling candidates from the large number of test pilots in the armed forces. And ironically, the best-known test pilot of them all is Chuck Yeager, played by playwright Sam Shepard, and he will be disqualified. He will not get to join the team. But 10 years before, he became known as the fastest man alive for being the first to break the sound barrier. And he kept breaking those records. Every time somebody topped what he did, he got in a plane and hit the impossible benchmark of beyond Mach 2. He is disqualified largely because of a technicality. The Appalachian man doesn't have a college degree, but maybe he also just seems like a prideful person that wouldn't be easy to control. He sees himself as a pilot, and he calls the people that are getting into these capsules specimens being shot like a cannonball. Ultimately, those seven specimens are pulled from the ranks of Marines, Navy, and Air Force test pilots, And while their competitive nature means at first there's a lot of bickering and one-upsmanship, particularly when it comes to some of the men's loose morals and cheating on their wives, they eventually rally together after Russia becomes the first country to put a man in space and NASA sends a chimpanzee up in their place. Problems plague all the initial Mercury missions. Scott Glenn plays Alan Shepard, the first American in space. They have him waiting so long on the launch pad that he has to pee in his spacesuit causing the scientists to worry if his urine could create an electrical fire. Next up is Gus Grisham, played by Fred Ward. He does okay until the hatch blows off early in the splashdown, and the capsule sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Gus himself also almost drowns, and has to live with the shame that everyone thinks he either panicked or acted stupidly in hitting the wrong button. Regardless, the scandal is quickly covered up to save face in the media. America can finally crow about a big success story when John Glenn is put into orbit and the gung-ho Marine is played by Ed Harris. Johnny is almost pulled from his mission for standing by his wife when she rejects the offer by Vice President Lyndon Johnson to appear in their house during his aborted launch. But the real jeopardy comes when he tries to re-enter Earth's atmosphere with a damaged heat shield and nearly burns up. The whole movie... Dennis Quaid has been crowing that he, Gordo Cooper, was the best pilot of the whole program, and he finally gets a chance to prove it at the conclusion of the film, as he is the last to launch and does complete 20 orbits around the Earth. Meanwhile, Chuck Yeager and all the other unchosen, unsung test pilots keep risking their lives to chase the demon of air and speed, and Yeager even gets to peek beyond the blue skies for a bit and see the stars that were denied him before he crashes his jet and credits roll. So, Jaeger, I do think that that was a big debate in all the early drafts of the script. Why would we include somebody that's not one of the Magical Seven? He's in the book. Tom Wolfe included him. But do we really need him in a movie that's going to be three hours long? Can't we shorten the movie, spend more time with the real heroes? Well, I'm just going to put it out there. For one thing, Chuck Yeager was brought in as a consultant on this film. So I don't think that his influence would have it such that he wouldn't be a part of the story. Yeah, I'm glad he's here. I like the starting point, like the sound barrier. I 
take an interest in like all kinds of science stuff, but like physics is really hard for me to like grasp onto some of its concepts. But like, okay, sound barrier, like I could kind of understand that. It just fascinates me. Like, here's this moment. This feels like, yeah, if you could break this barrier, then maybe you could break the orbit of Earth and get to space. So I'm glad Jaeger's story is here because you know what? I only knew him as Chuck Jaeger's flight simulator that my cousin had, where we'd fly. Well, you could kind of do the flight he does at the end and fly it way up into space, and then your airplane blows up. <laughs> it's true. For those that had PCs in the 1980s, he was the guy that was always hawking those. Like, if you wanted to learn how to fly, he had a, a floppy disk you could put in and he would teach you. <laughs> I'm going to split the difference on this because I'm glad it's here. I mean, I think if you're going to talk about this, you do have to talk about Chuck Yeager. But I feel like this opening prologue is a bit long. It feels like it's a third of the movie almost. Yeah, and again, is that because Jaeger's on set and they, they have so much information to pull from? Should he have gotten his own biopic and that would have been different than the right stuff? I don't know. I feel like this movie's concerns are as much about the men that built up to the Seven as it is about the Seven. I feel like starting with the idea of what a test pilot really is and how much risk there is. It feels like in this moment, this was like where we learned the Earth wasn't flat or something. They're talking about the sound barrier being a brick wall. And like nobody thinks in 1947, I don't know about nobody, but the common perception is among these pilots that if you ever try to surpass this, boom, you're dead. I mean, how threatening to think that like you could fall off the edge of the world, you know, like that's what it feels like. This is the man that's going to prove that it is possible to go beyond the bounds of the clouds. Yeah, and I feel like because so much of this film is about... Maybe it makes you heroic, maybe it makes you crazy, but like just the dangerous stuff that people offer to do that the U.S. government had people do to get into space. Like, here it is. Yeah, you talked about if you break that barrier, you might die. Like, here's the beginning of that tradition. It's also neat to see this historical stuff being recreated in full living color as well. But so often the era of Chuck Yeager is painted in, you know, black and white film from the era. And to see his plane finally does break the sound barrier in this bright orange that really repaints history for me to a certain degree. Yeah, one of the things I like about this film is it's a period piece, but I forget about that because, yes, their costuming is period-specific. I could say, oh, yeah, that's maybe 50s or 60s or something, but it never feels like it's shot in a way to conjure up images of old-timey photos or anything. It just feels like these are real people, and, yeah, it just happens to be starting off in 1947. For just a little bit, we get black and white. You know, there's yeah. just some stock footage of the clouds and the men preparing to go up, but when we see that plane go down and explode, Explode. That fiery explosion is what brings everything into yeah, modern sensibilities, visual style. And again, it helps emphasize the real theme here of how dangerous this work is. And yes, you could call it heroic or you could call it really stupid. Like, why would somebody need to do this? Because it's the high ground, Stuart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all first needing to be this self-destructive. Again, if you thought you were going to drive your plane into a brick wall... If you thought that there was no path to this. I really love the setup, though. One of the things that has always made this movie for me, I can't imagine it in other directorial hands, it's the way that Philip Kaufman is going to put in these little symbolic touches. Here, we have Jaeger riding in on a horse, approaching this X-1 plane with the flames coming out of it. You're seeing the old world confront the new world. It's obvious, but it's so powerful. It's so potent. And many times in this movie, I feel like the image making, it's very Spielbergian. It's very broad, but it really has an impact. 
I agree it's obvious, but it was unexpected. So at first I'm like, wait, am I in an art film? Like, is this not the film I thought it would be? Are we going to get some like weird Nicholas Rogue type shots going on with nature and all that with this horror circling around this jet? But yeah, it's beautiful. Like you said, Justin, with that yellow jet, the way it stands out. But yeah, obvious symbolism, but like it really did pull me in. I was not expecting Chuck Yeager to ride a horse around a jet. Yeah, sometimes obvious is the way to go. I mean, we like our subtlety, but sometimes the way to really hit and have an impact is to do something like, bam, like put it in your face. And yeah, the fact that this guy is just going to kind of saunter into a bar, the guy that should be flying this plane is going to ask for too much money and for the price of a stake, because <laughs> it's not about money for him. It defines who he is. I'm a cowboy that's always looking to push boundaries. I want to find that new frontier. Yeah, he's going to do it for the $283 a month he makes from the Air Force. I have a question for you, though, Stuart, because I do feel like this skips some things that might help it make a little bit more sense. But these are all like military guys, right? But they can't just force them to be test pilots like they volunteer. They could pay them extra. I didn't quite understand how all that worked or if these were private contractors hiring them out. I don't know that I can tell you specifically who these men in the bar. In a lot of ways, I feel like some of these characters are composite. There's several people, you know, history is messy. You want to clean it up for audiences. Some of these figures that are the bosses of the program are, in fact, numerous people. But I guess the feeling is how could you ask anyone to take this risk? If you're asking them to do something that, yeah, may kill them, that nobody knows if it's possible, that we've seen several people now go down you know we had a moment at a funeral where like yeah they're gonna it's almost expected it's part of the whole mentality is that like i'm gonna go up there i'm gonna fly and one day they're gonna be putting me in the ground and playing that accordion yeah so much so that if you want your picture up the wall at that bar the only way to do that is to die in a test <laughs> mm -hmm. and again that's what i love about this movie is it's not going to forget it's not going to be a, a star fucker it's not going to be about, oh, the famous people that got to go. It's going to be about all the people that built this bridge to this moment happening. Yeah, I'll say this overall for the film. I was surprised it's about all those who gave their life. It's going to focus a lot on the wives, too. Like, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say this is a big feminist film, but, like, it's going to show their plight and what they're going through. Like, sometimes it's very funny, but here early on, like... Every time you hear a crash, like I love when you get this like PTSD scene where they just hear a boom from a truck and they think their husband has died. Yeah, we get Glennis right here. Like it's not we don't know she's his wife right away, but here in the bar, Chuck is going to negotiate and say, "Yeah, I'll go up in your X1 plane." And there's this woman at the bar that seems unimpressed and challenges him to a horse race, and there's another woman that was obviously angling for Chuck. She finds out that's his wife, and we can really see the relationship of a woman that knows that she's kind of tired of dating the bad boy and yet that's what she's really into and so yeah they have this funny uh you know she dares him to catch her she doesn't think it's possible and then sure enough he hits his head on a joshua tree breaks his ribs and is still gonna get in that plane the next day <laughs> is there any confirmation that this is true i'm sure jaeger says it's true it is in the book okay and it is the story that is understood and yeah how crazy is this now some of this is Philip Kaufman doing his thing. I don't know that he was, you know, riding. I don't know that it was, I think it was something else that broke his ribs. I don't think it was the horse riding. I think he wanted to bring that Wild West feel into this movie and juxtapose that with the modernness of air travel. But uh, yes, 
it is true that Chuck Yeager had broken his ribs and disguised that fact and still wanted to go up. And again, that's a character defining moment. Like, I want this so bad. I don't even care if I'm qualified or not anymore. I'm just going to fake it. Just give me some gum. Give me a broom handle. <laughs> I love that. Just borrow the broom handle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think for this being a historical dramatization, I think some of those liberties are going to be fine. Him riding around on a horse and that's how he gets his ribs injured is more palatable and better on screen than him getting in a bar fight over Ace hitting on his wife at the bar. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. so, <laughs> you know, if they're going to take those types of liberties. Yeah, I, I don't mind flourish. Fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as long as his ribs were actually broken, I don't have a problem with how they get broken in this film. Yeah, I I think that they definitely, again, they had access to Jaeger. He's there on set. He's in this movie. If you look, there's oftentimes we're seeing Pancho behind the bar, but there's a man named Frank that's also serving drinks. That's the real Chuck Jaeger. So he's actor as well as consultant on this film. That's part of the fun I'm having early on in this movie, too, is just picking out all of these actors early in their career, you know? I mean, we're seeing Barbara Hershey here early on. We're also seeing Scott Wilson, which fans of Walking Dead will recognize as Herschel, as a young man. I mean, this is crazy. And as the movie goes on, there's even more. I mean, I would call them cameos now, but it's almost, you know, this is the beginning of a lot of these actors' careers. With all these years in between us, it's almost a fun look back at where some of these guys got their start. I agree. There, It's also an acting test, as well as a test for these astronauts, whether they can endure all the things they're going to be put through to be shot out like a cannon. It is like, who are all these untested actors that want to be the next, who knows what, Paul Newman or Steve McQueen, the next macho man for the screen. All of them seem to want to have that reputation. And I'm not sure any of them do. Maybe the closest we get is Dennis Quaid. But by and large, I do feel like maybe everyone's most famous performance that's in this cast is this movie. I do think even Ed Harris, this is a shining moment for him. But Sam Shepard, he was a playwright before he was an actor, I think, and kind of a strange one at that. He makes sense as this Appalachian guy that, yeah, is going to just talk funny and have this weird sensibility and do what he claims he's going to do while everyone else has counted him out. He's streaking up into the sky and they hear that boom for the first time. All of them think that that's just another plane exploding. I love the fact that we cut back to the pictures at the bar. Again, the editing in this, it's so well-crafted in what it asks you to reflect on. The juxtapositions are so good. Oh, I I agree. When we get to that peeing your pants scene, great editing going on Mm -hmm. there. But the other thing I really like, and they do it, I think mostly or or almost exclusively with Jaeger, is they do this point of view when he's flying because he's going so fast and the distorted clouds and blacking out at times and just weird colors. Like at times the sky looks like it's flat. And like a floor you can crash into. It's really weird optical illusions going on. But I I really enjoyed all that stuff. Yeah, it's like he's starting the 2001, like, enter the Stargate. (laughs) And then, like, it is like a brick wall. Bam, you're not going anywhere. And what I really find fascinating about Jaeger, and again, it would be so easy to remove him if you were telling the narrative of how NASA came to be. He doesn't fit into that. But if you're telling the narrative of what it's like to strive for an impossible goal, and again, just to be part of a longer line of men, the pain of him, you know, he like in celebrating this, he and his wife go out drinking, they're howling at the moon. And of course, we'll check in on him for the next 10 years, 15 years. He's always staring at that moon. He's always hearing about the space race and really hurting. 
because it should have been him. He should have been the fastest guy. He wanted to remain the fastest guy to have to step aside and let other people. And of course, all these men, none of them get to go to the moon. So all of that, in the end, they're all losers in that race. None of them get to do what the goal is. And I think that's what's really interesting about these performances. And I think it's really funny, too. They do something here where they're like, okay, Jaeger broke the sound barrier, but we don't want to tell anybody. Like, it's a national <laughs> secret. Oh, great scene. <laughs> and someone's like, but why don't we want the Russians to know? They were our allies in World War II. Like, they're our friends. Yeah, World War II is like, had just recently ended. Like, this is 1947, this scene. So, <laughs> really puts it in perspective because of course my thinking is Russia has always been this Cold War enemy and all of that but in 1947 when this is happening you wouldn't think that it would be that big a deal again they had just worked with us it was Japan and Germany that were the enemies now Germany is going to be filling the space program we're going to see them being the people that are designing the rockets it's really interesting how history can turn on a dime friends can become enemies yeah this is the narrative that I think I would like to see a little bit more of in this long three-hour runtime a little bit more of what made the space race so dire to win i feel like what we do see here is some quick flashes of what Russia's doing and some smoky boardrooms talking about it but i would like it to be fleshed out a little bit more here well you were alive in the 80s right i mean you do remember that <laughs> like the, it was communism it was an ideological war it was the idea that capitalism could fall to communism. And yeah, LBJ specifically saying if they conquer space, then we'll be conquered as a people. Yeah, there's a line, and I think it's part of this film's just sensibility to poke fun at American politics as well as portray the patriotism as well. But like the fact that we're worried about the Russians like Donkey Kong tossing nukes down on us from space... I don't know. I feel like that wraps it all up tighter than if I got a lot more stuff with the Russians. Like, to me, that tells me what the American viewpoint was in the government. And Justin, I would say, I agree, like, maybe now you would want that perspective. But in 1983, when this movie is coming out, that is the very height of the Cold War politics. Like, every American knows that the Russia is just the unquestionable foe that must be defeated. Yeah, I I felt like if you're talking about you know, getting into space seems like we should be focusing on the Russians. They're doing it all first in this film. But yeah, it's 1983. It's an American film. Like we can't let the Russians be those kind of heroes. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair assessment that, you know, with all these years of perspective to look back on it, you know, and maybe me wanting some slight nuance or some slight subtle differences there isn't fair. Well, Russia doesn't feel that dominant anymore. Right. It is like they've certainly fallen in stature as a superpower. Not to say that they don't have a space program, not to say they're not accomplishing things, but they, by comparison to China, they feel far less of a threat. At any rate, we're shifting gears away from Jaeger and we're moving on to other wannabes that are coming to Edwards Air Force Base hoping to take his record away from him. And this is where, as you say, we get Scott Wilson. He does briefly break Mach 2. He will not remain the champion. But I do love the way that he becomes sort of the ensemble at the bar. Like just another one of these guys that was cool for a minute and then gets thrown away. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting because we're told that Jaeger, every time someone beats his record, he'll go beat theirs. But when Mach 2 is hit, well, that's it. Like, the press likes a round number. They're not going to be interested in it anymore. And then you get this whole thing about funding. and You start to see the what it takes to have these kind of programs. And if you want to be this test pilot, like, it's starting to plant the seeds for a lot of showboating that's going to come later on. 
One thing I am glad about, you know, having the Jaeger stuff up top, I think it is, it's a nice dichotomy between the generations there. You know, we get to see Jaeger, who's kind of a stoic, masculine, kind of quiet type of man. Still has an ego, driven by ego, but then to juxtapose it with these other guys, most notably Quaid's character, I would say, being driven by ego and machismo almost. Yeah, he's the Tom Cruise of this film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, Cooper, I don't think was the youngest one. Maybe I'm wrong on that. It's hard. I mean, details, history's not my forte. I read the book, but like not everything is stuck. But I don't think the character was the youngest. But here, the way Dennis Quaid certainly plays it, you're right. He definitely could have had the career of a Tom Cruise. You would have cast Tom Cruise in this role. And we spend a lot of time with him bragging that he's going to be, or is, frankly, even in this moment, untested. He is the greatest pilot ever known. He just needs his shot. And he's the one that sort of introduces us to this culture. We see really through his eyes and Trudy's, his wife's eyes, how difficult it is to compete in a place where everyone is trying to outperform everyone else. She gets there. There's no electricity. There's no running water. Why would people put up to this? Yeah, bugs all over the place. Yeah, she looks out. Her kids are playing with planes. And then in the distance, that plume of black smoke because... Yeah, the number gets said later at the bar. 62 men dying yearly. Not even yearly in 36 weeks. Like two-thirds of a year, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, your odds are just not good. Again, one day that minister is going to be walking up to your doorstep, taking off his hat. You would live in constant fear of that happening. And so, of course, it forms this bond with all the wives. Of course, whether they like each other or not, they're going to cling to each other because emotionally speaking, how awful to think every day you kiss your husband goodbye, that could be it. You know, the next thing you know is a terrible accordion. And again, the fact that it's an accordion playing at the funeral just really like (laughs) underlines how tragic it all is. I also like the way it plays that once in the Jaeger days, he broke the sound barrier. They weren't sure what would happen. And that's when they discovered a sonic boom. And now sonic booms in this era we're in now are just commonplace around there. They're constantly hitting these booms, and these poor wives have to sit around wondering if the boom they just heard was just yet another in a long line of sonic booms or their husband crashing in a field. Anytime you heard that noise, you would just live in constant fear of, oh my God. And again, master visual maker that Kaufman is, this that one little moment where she goes and looks out, all the men are at the grill, and they've set all the meat on fire, and Dennis Quaid thinks it's hilarious that he's holding up a charred hot dog, but that's his nickname, right? I'm hot dog, and... Again, Trudy sees it. This could be the fate of my husband. In fact, this is going to be the fate of my husband. Why am I going to stick around? I'm going to go down to San Diego and live with my parents. She'll disappear from the picture for a while. And really, I think Jaeger gets to coast on all of this until Russia launches Sputnik. A stupid little device. It beeped. It didn't really do anything. They called it like a, a artificial moon. I mean, they really had a good hype machine around this thing. But if you ever really see it, you're like, okay, this is like a child's toy that they just managed to get into orbit for a little while. But it scared the bejesus out of America, and it really sent the signal that Russia was dominant in the next wave of conquering space. This is a very artistically shot scene. Like, whenever we cut to Russia, we get these weird, wavy clouds and this man's face. I guess they say that's the man who designed their shuttle. I don't know why we keep cutting to his face, though. It seemed a little odd. Yeah, the filming here makes it feel like 
the Winter Soldier just got activated and these are his memories. Yeah, it's like a bad nightmare or something. <laughs> well, what they're doing is they're projecting on the rocket flame. You're seeing like an actual image of a cackling Russian on rocket flames. And so like, yeah, the exhaust and the distortion of all of that. Yeah, again, I think Kaufman is a great image maker. He manages to find exposition, ways of making that look visual and interesting. The footnote on this guy, there's more of about him in the book, but Russia was embarrassed by this. The head of their program was someone that had spent a large amount of time in jail. He was a criminal, but he was also brilliant. And so they wouldn't let out details about who was running their program. And it just created a whole sense of existential dread. As you can see, it made the president of the United States and everyone in the room, Jeff Goldblum, all of them are going to be freaking out that who are these Russians? What do they know? Are our Germans as good as their Germans? Yes, this is one of my favorite scenes. I love that line where they're comparing German scientists that they <laughs> stole from Nazi Germany, brought over to help them with ours and their science programs. And then I love it. Like Eisenhower show. I'm like, oh, we're getting presidents in this. Like, I know that's Eisenhower. That actor looks just like him. And he's like, we're not sending chimps in space. We need to send a man. I'm like, did they send chimps first? Like I was really questioning my knowledge of the space program. And a dog too. Like, yeah, animals. Yeah, there was a dog. Yeah, that was the Russians. But I love this scene where like the president goes through this list of people that could be astronauts, surfers, because good for splashdown when that capsule hits the water <laughs> like demolition derby drivers like this is such a great scene they're comfortable with flame i mean my god yes another way of saying cars explode and they're inside yeah. of them okay <laughs> this is the qualities we need i mean tightrope walkers high divers like this i gotta know if this is really real like this is crazy well, yeah, I mean, it's real in the sense that, I mean, again, this book, I think, is expertly titled The Right Stuff. What is stuff? You know, that's not a very scientific word. It's not the right qualities, the right attributes. It's the right stuff. I don't know what it is that would make someone good at this because they're not pilots. I mean, this is the thing that Jaeger really underlines. It's They reject him, but he kind of rejects them at the same time. Why would I want to be shot out of a cannon? Go to a circus performer. Pilots have control. And what you're telling me is I'm a lab rat. I'm a lab rabbit that's going to be treated like a specimen shot out into space. That's not what I do. I'm a test pilot. I'm sorry, are you saying spaceman? Yeah, I mean, they end up coming up with a cool, cool name, astronauts. And again, some of the test pilots like the connotations of that. Again, PR is so important in this space race. What I really love about this movie is how attuned it is to the way propaganda really sells concepts. And again, like all of these men that probably should be indignant at the idea of being shot out of a cannon want to become astronauts because, hey, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess what we're saying here is in addition to the serious subject matter here, this movie and script does have a great sense of humor. I mean, there's plenty of comedy relief here. And casting Harry Shearer and Jeff Goldblum as these two characters, genius. Yeah, I heard that voice. I'm like, is that Harry Shearer? Yes. Like, I swear that's his voice. And like, I had to stop it and look it up. I'm like, that's him. And look, love Harry Shearer. He's a little guy. Don't stick him next to a really tall guy, Jeff Goldblum. He looks even shorter. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the whole Abbott and Costello thing. I get it. I know. I get the joke, but I feel so bad for him. He looks tiny in this. <laughs> yeah, they really feel like a comedy duo. And, and you're right. I think modern audiences would be, at this point, I was. I was like, wait, I thought this was a movie like Apollo 13. I thought you were going to tell me important stuff about NASA. And this is a goofy movie. 
Yeah, I'm not even exaggerating. Like when I got that to that scene with Eisenhower going through tightrope walkers and his like list and this stuff with Goldblum and Sheer, I'm like, I don't think Armageddon was like going that far <laughs> off. Like they they kind of tapped into the tone of this film for that movie. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I really feel like you could spend a lot of time. It's not productive for the movie. It's got to get somewhere. It's got to tell us some history. But I could. I just could hang out with these guys at Pancho's for a whole movie. There's so many times, specifically you, Stuart, you say, oh, this should be a TV show. And like, well, I guess you'll tell us about the Disney Plus thing afterwards. But yes, this feels like it be, should be a TV show. I want an episode of Jeff Goldblum and Sheer walking around, losing their lunch on aircraft carriers, like just doing all their goofy stuff. Like, it's so entertaining. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't even have to go to space. These people are just fun to watch, just in the way they one-up each other and their various personalities and their wives, all of that. Again, I'm empathizing a lot with Trudy as she's like, what have I gotten myself into? Why am I attached to this man that is clearly going to end up spam in a can? Like, this is not what I wanted to sign up for. How do you grapple with it? But yeah, Jeff Goldblum and Harry Shearer, they have a real fun moment here in the in the middle where they're just trying to find candidates and they rule out, again, Jaeger's out. He didn't go to college and he seems really difficult. So no one him. They turn on the TV and there they see name that tune. And it's this is all true. Like John Glenn was becoming like a TV personality before he was an astronaut. He was hanging out with Boy Scouts and guessing like songs by their opening strains. And that, again, sells the idea that the right stuff really is who's good for PR. Who turns into a symbol really well? Who represents American ideals? I guess you would have to say that, yeah, this guy, religious. I mean, certainly when we get to the press conference later, John Glenn is the prototypical American patriot spaceman. Yeah, it's interesting to see how that played out. To find out that John Glenn was somewhat of a star on the rise before the space program is a little bit shocking to me because I feel like that's the the tail wagging the dog a little bit. But it just makes sense because I talked about earlier how the space race of the era really drove the culture. I mean, we see clips of the Ed Sullivan show interviewing that joke-telling astronaut wannabe guy. Jose Jimenez. Jimenez, yes. And, you know, just how toys of rockets and kids playing astronaut out in the field and stuff like that so yeah to find out that john glenn was you know somewhat of a star on the rise before the program that really shocked me yeah and jose jimenez again the world is laughing at america that's really what it signifies that like within his little bits about his is that a crash element and all of that really when you see the actual things that america is doing it's like russia's getting up there they're sending dogs and people and sputnik and what have you and our rockets are exploding on the pad like we fail every week and there's a great montage later of all of the like it goes up 50 feet and then it comes down or the thing pops off which is real footage because i remember seeing this as a kid being pulled onto some road trip by my family for summer vacation, went to some IMAX theater, like when IMAX were just at museums and stuff. And yeah, it was about the space race and like, got to see all these like on a giant screen. Like this is when my daughters really started paying attention to this film. I'm like, watch this stuff. This is good. And it blew them away. They're like, is this real? I'm like, yep. They were real failures of the spaceships just imploding and falling down. 
So how do you recruit in that environment when everyone's going to laugh at you and the people that are put, trying to put you up in space may kill you and turn you into a grizzled hot dog? I think they finally figure it out when they get to the Navy air carrier and Alan Shepard comes in. They really tell him it's like, oh, it's so dangerous. It's so hazardous. We will forgive you if you wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, you got to play to this men's ego, this sense of like that they could do anything for them to like not think of it as a joke, but really want to pursue this. And I got to say, when we meet Shepard landing on that aircraft carrier, I think we're supposed to get Top Gun 2 this month, but that got pushed. Like, this does reinforce, like, that first film, just watch the aircraft carrier stuff. It is really great footage, and they capture it here, too, with these planes landing on there. I don't know. Just, it looks great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did have access to some of this. Some of it is stock footage, and some of it is they were shooting in California. There's a big base down in San Diego, and they were just able to work some deals. And again, they had a large budget to pull this movie together. Sometimes there are scenes to that. Sometimes I see effect shots really later when they actually get into space. There's some painful space footage that is obviously not convincing. Agreed. Not the real stuff. But uh, (laughs) by and large, this movie is a visual marvel. And you're right. This is just, I love the way that it can hop around and show us all of these very authentic places. Like Loveless Clinic. Like, boy, again, another sitcom that we could just have this mustachioed nurse putting these men through all these crazy tortures. And there's a great scene with Cooper, Dennis Quaid's character, like hitting on this nurse. During- Guys, this is a PG film. So I'm like, oh, I'll just play it for my girls. There's a whole scene about jerking off into a cup. And <laughs> like he thinks if he hits on this nurse, he'll get accepted to the program. PG was very different. There's even some F words in this. <laughs> yeah, this is before PG-13, right on the cusp there. So yeah. <laughs> Yep, good point. It probably is a PG-13 movie that just came out a few months early. Too early for that rating. Yeah, there's some characters in these test scenes, and one really strange ADR choice with the Mexican nurse who overheard (laughs) one of the astronauts doing a fairly racist accent. His Jose Jimenez impersonation. (laughs) Right. And then when we finally hear him talk, it's obviously overdubbed. It almost gave me a Pee Wee Herman type of vibe, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I have to ask, like, we see all these tests going on. There's this one where they're in a room with diodes all hooked up to him, and Cooper is just sleeping. And the scene sticks out to me because the way it's shot is so engaging with that strange-looking nurse just, like, looking through that window and slightly smiling as Cooper sleeps. But what was the test there? Yeah, uh, it's kind of the opposite of a deprivation tank. They had to do that, too, where, you know, they put you in the water. and I thought that's what it was at first, but, yes, sirens start going off. I guess you could call it that, but it's almost like a stimulation tank. It's like we got steam going, we got air horns going off, we got red flashing lights. Can you sleep in an environment like that? Can you read a magazine? Your ability to concentrate and do your job, so to speak, is what's being tested there. With all of this distraction and all this noise, some people, like the guy that's right next to Dennis Quaid, is going to go running to the door. After a day of that, it was day two, you're not sleeping. You really, you know, some people just collapse. And so, yes, this is sort of Cooper's characteristic He's called the hot dog, but truthfully, it's the fact that he can sleep. Like, even when we see him at the end and he's about to launch, he's snoring. Whether he's faking it or not, he likes to project the idea that nothing gets to him and that he could sleep through anything. 
And I think some of these tests are lost on a modern audience too, looking back on this time. Is to me, I'm not sure which of these are just supposed to look ridiculous or which ones just do look ridiculous because of the lack of technology at the time. Like there's one where they just put like a massager on your arm and shake it really hard. I wasn't (laughs) sure what that was. Exactly. I think about half of them were meant to be funny. Well, I hope what comes through here, again, it's going back to that word stuff. What are we testing for? What are the qualities we want? I guess if someone can make a fist still while they have electrodes in them that are trying to make that stimulation open up the fist... They seem like crazy tests. Is that why you would send someone to space? Is it because they could be in that room, that funhouse room with all that noise and lights? Is that a reason to send them to space? I don't know. They didn't know. And we see the chimps doing just as well. Like they're spinning them on cheers too, and they're (laughs) able to hit those buttons. Yeah. Again, there's no getting away from that. And it's worth pointing out in this movie, they make it seem like uh, Jaeger was diplomatic and being like, these men deserve respect. You know, later on, he'll make something to the fact of don't call them space chimps. But actually, technically speaking, the real Jaeger was the first person to point that out in press. That was an early PR problem was we had the great Chuck Jaeger, who had his own movie. I want to point out he was a big enough star in the 1950s to get a biopic about him and what he did. And of course, it was greatly exaggerated and played by a British person and really pissed him (laughs) off. But the point is, if you have someone of that caliber pissing on your space program it's just another jose jimenez it's just another way that you're losing the battle in who's the cool superpower russia is obviously winning in all of this but yeah some of these tests i don't know lung power it's the one opportunity we have to know scott carpenter i do feel like seven astronauts but maybe only four that matter. This is one of the forgotten ones, but he can actually keep that ball inflated above the mercury longer than anybody else. So that's his claim to fame, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, Carpenter, Slayton, and Shira have no idea who these men are. But you do know who Shira is, right? That's Lance Hendrickson. Oh, yeah, I know the actor. Correct. (laughs) Yeah, Bishop from Aliens. Yeah, it was strange to see him in this movie. Yeah, we got two people from the Aliens franchise in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like you'll lose some of them, and maybe you'll want to read their stories in the book. Again, I'll, we'll talk about them. I think there's a reason why we don't focus on what they do. They're later, and their accomplishments are not always significant. Yeah, I was just going to say that this is about the part of the movie where you realize that the press is actually going to play a role here as well. and. In today's cynical world, nobody trusts the press one way or the other, and that's what it is. But back in this time, to have a movie portraying the press in such a way, like, there's even a sound effect every time the press is swarming. It almost sounds like locusts. It's a low buzz noise. It is comical what we see the press doing later on, like climbing over banisters and all that. (laughs) But it's a shift, right? Because they started out saying national security, don't tell no one we broke the sound barrier. And then they realize actually PR is a weapon. Right. Like if we can get people to believe propaganda, then we have a unified country. Like no bucks, no buck Rogers becomes a slogan. And I think that they realize that the way to get this thing funded is to have Americans care. We have to believe in Buck Rogers in order for people to say, my tax dollars should go to this loony program where we're doing all this stuff to people. And we see that moment when they announce the seven chosen astronauts and there's that press conference and they're all kind of mumbling their way through it until we get to Glenn, who's very eloquent, knows how to play the crowd. And we see Cooper like jump in. And I love Shepard's moment like, oh, yeah, I, I attend church regularly. Crowd goes wild. Like Americans love that. 
<laughs> and he, you can tell he's lying too. Like yes. he, he himself is <laughs> laughing. All of them are realizing their power. What's fun about the scene is they all realize I could just like make up some real BS right here. And they're all on their feet in tears applauding me. It's hilarious. But of course, with that power means, oh, now I can do anything that I want. And I think that's really what gave the encouragement. Who knows? Maybe they would have done it anyway. I'm going to make a terrible generalization, but they are in the military. And I do feel like the fidelity question can be really complicated there. It's not surprising four of the seven men are actively cheating on their wives. And we come to find out that John Glenn, at least according to this, has a moral issue with that and tries to step in and preach from his pulpit about it, but he gets pushback. So that's another interesting thing that you would not even consider having knowledge of in the 60s. I mean, infidelity was something that was not only not talked about, it was just shoved under dark recesses of closets. I think women got blamed, honestly. They were, you know, if if they couldn't keep their household, that was really the perspective. If they couldn't keep their man, it was a blight on them as women. And so, yeah, again, I love that this movie will give some time to that. And we do meet John Glenn's wife. And I think it's really touching to think that, yeah, he married this woman with an extreme stutter. It's not quite as severe. I have seen footage of her speak to the cameras. So I don't think Annie is... Here, for dramatic effect, they make it seem like she is shy from all of the cameras and the press and the Life magazine because she's hiding the secret that if she says a sentence that she won't be able to get through it. Well, yeah, we don't even find out this until a little bit later on because our first interaction with her is through Trudy, who just thinks that she's a snob because she just kind of snubs her after a comment after meeting with the editor-in-chief of Life magazine. Yeah, this is where we're getting a lot of personal stories and, again, a whole series, right? This really is the Disney Plus series. I'll just go ahead and spoil it. If you want to know the dishy, who's sleeping with who, what do the wives think, and all of that stuff, there is the Disney Plus show to expand on all of this. But we're getting close, hopefully, maybe to space. Like, we have a capsule now, but I love these astronauts don't like that it's called a capsule. They do want to be pilots. They want windows, and they want hatches that could blow open, and they want to be able to control this thing. And I just, I love their interactions with these German scientists who are so unhappy about it. Again, this is where they realize that they have power. And again, they're really feeling pressure, not only from Russia, but this chimpanzee thing. I mean, how embarrassing it is that, like, yeah, a monkey can do what you can do like i mean that's what you would say to someone as an insult a monkey can do your job you know i can replace you is embedded in that how can you feel like a hero some kind of icon if ham the chimp like i just love the fact that they cut to, you don't even know it yet the rocket launches they've had so many problems and the rocket launches they're like yay and then like they take the picture and it's a screeching monkey inside so yeah these guys are like we are pilots and you're right when they see the capsule they're like we got things that need to be added we need doors and windows and some kind of control because we are not going to just be shot up in space like a chump. Though I do love the German engineers. They're just smiling as they're talking about how they, they're not chimps because they know a chimp's going up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a chimp's going up. And the first person that goes up, that Alan Shepard, will not get some of these amenities. Some of the changes that they do concede to the, well, we'll call it spacecraft now. Don't call it a capsule, but yes, that comes later. And there's some ironies embedded in that because Gus is the one that asks for the hatch door. And of course, that becomes really the badge of shame for him for the rest of his career. But see, the, and this is where my ignorance of the Mercury program start 
coming into play because I know Alan Shepard. I know John Glenn. Like, these are names I know. I don't know the order they go in or who did what, orbited, or just went into space. But it feels like there's a big secret because it feels like Glenn's going to be the first one to go into space. That That's the buildup. And then it's not him. We see him standing there besides the capsule and someone. And they take a while to reveal who it was. I figured, oh, it's got to be like that Carpenter guy who I've never heard of because it's going to blow up, right? No, it is Shepard. And yeah, is there a reason? I, I didn't catch why they picked him first. Yeah, I agree. This is something that does get lost in this movie. And, uh, you know, maybe it doesn't need to be here. Maybe it's not important. But going on beyond the scenes is, I think you get it a little bit. We do have one scene of a lecture in which, yeah, we've already discussed the fact that John Glenn is the moral one. And he's like, I don't like the fact that you guys are going out to the bars and carousing. And some of this is winding up in magazines. It's a PR problem. It could really put a blemish on this entire program. And you see Shepard is the one that pushes back and says, I don't like you and you're moralizing. I don't like the fact that you took over that press conference. All of that competition was naturally built into all of these guys. They're all going to be competitive with one another. But there was a real big rivalry between you were either Camp Shepard or you were Camp Glenn. And what happened was they took a vote. The men elected who was going to go up and they picked Shepard over Glenn. Did they not like him? Did they think it was going to blow up and that's why they picked him? <laughs> no one liked Glenn. How can you like Glenn if he's the one that thinks he's morally superior to you? Everyone resented that. And even though he might have been more qualified, and certainly it was he was the figure that the press liked the most because he was the most articulate, I think that the men themselves just didn't want, wanted to deny that guy. That guy thinks he's always first. We're going to make him third. <laughs> and so, yeah, we get Shepard. And yeah, they treat it like a mystery. We see somebody in the pressure suit going up the elevator, climbing into the capsule. Who can it be? It's kind of a shock when we see John Glenn pop his head in and say, via Condios. Jose, and we realize it is Shepard. And of course, he gets this very funny, true story about having sat so long that the four cups of coffee he had become a problem. It is such a brilliantly cut scene. Like, yes, he's got to pee, just hold it, recut, and hear his wife talking about how he had four cups of coffee, just close ups of water being poured, of air bubbles blowing up in water bottles. Like, <laughs> it, it is brilliant. Like, it blew me away. All for a pee joke. Like, best pee joke out there. And a racist joke. I'm a wetback now. I mean, that's like, oof. Yeah, unfortunately ends that way. But again, this is the character, right? Like, whether you want to laugh at that or not, this was someone that, again, had had all of that back and forth with Gonzalez, the orderly, and, and what have you, and had really taken on the character of Jose Jimenez. And now that he's in this moment, is not looking so calm. He actually looks like he suffered a lot in this. And what kind of gets left out here, but maybe it comes through. I don't know. You guys tell me. He walks away feeling disappointed. He wanted to go again. He felt like he was in the one, the capsule that didn't have the window and it was the shortest one. You know, he was up and down. And he basically did the Shatner trip. <laughs> like, we're going to shoot you up. You get 15 minutes in space and then you drop down. But you're right. Yeah, he didn't have that window. He doesn't get to see anything. Right. So he felt kind of ripped off. And another thing he was hiding was he had uh, ear problems. I don't know if it was tinnitus or, or something that would disqualify him in the medical exam if it came out. And I think that's ultimately why he didn't get to go up again. But he's a pretty bitter person about what happened. He gets to be the first, and that's cool. But I don't think he is the most celebrated member of this program. But he'll always be better than Grissom, right? Yes. <laughs> 
when we get to that, this poor guy. Fred Ward has been playing it the whole time, kind of like this cat, kind of like the wannabe to Dennis Quaid's cool guy. He's the one that tries to turn on the charm with the ladies and flirt and do all of that. Yeah, that waitress he flirts with. Like, I'm like, I don't know that that's one you want to flirt with. Look, everyone's got different tastes. Personally, that's not the waitress I want to flirt with. Yeah, I feel like in lots of ways, Grissom was less handsome. Maybe, I don't know about qualified. Because again, what are the qualities? But not expected to be in the running for second. All right, you go with Alan Shepard. Everyone voted for him. But the next one should obviously be John Glenn. And it's this guy. Yeah, it's weird that it's Fred Ward's character going up. Yeah, I mean, if these guys were a band, we're now talking about the bass player, maybe a tambourine player off to the side, you know, I mean... Don't diss bass players, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Real background, really ornamental, at least how this movie wants to portray it. Again, the real Gus Grissom, I don't know. They treat it like there's bad omens with him all the time, that he's going to take all of these lucky trinkets and then be able to get laid all the time by giving them away. Yeah, I'll sell you a dime that's been in space. (laughs) Yeah, but he ends up becoming like, yeah, the hatch blower. And I've looked into this. Okay, I want to know. (laughs) Apparently, it's possible. It is possible that he didn't hit the button. At the time that Tom Wolfe wrote this, and for many years afterwards, everyone said what this movie concludes. And that is, the man either panicked or he just, you know, stupidly hit something, or one of his trinkets fell out of his pocket and hit the thing. But it was his mistake, and he would never own that. And because of that, we lost the capsule, and this is a really embarrassing splashdown. But what I hear is that static electricity is now considered a real culprit. It could be that he did nothing other than have some real static cling buildup, and that, like, caused the button to go. So Gus always stuck to his story, that it was just went off, that he had nothing to do with it. Well, you know, the movie will underline this later, but he actually will die. Four years later, he's on Apollo 1. And what's interesting about that is they burned up on the launch pad, right? I remember this one because I saw Apollo 13. They didn't get out. And why didn't they get out? It's somewhat theorized that they could have gotten out in time not to burn up. But if you have the reputation of the guy that got out too early and blew the hatch, if you get to go up a second time, there's no way you're going to get out of the ship early. And so that may be why they died. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that scene was a little confusing to me because I, you know, I thought maybe he was drowning or we were learning that he couldn't swim. No, no. One thing that he can't get away from, there was some kind of valve on his suit that meant, you know, there was a very inflatable suit, but he didn't turn on the valve. Oh, so he had to blow it up because the helicopter pilots are like, ah, he could float. We don't need to worry about him. Correct. We're worried about the capsule because we got minutes before this sinks. We know he can float for hours. Little did they know he is not floating and he is like losing his strength and yes, drowning. They barely got him out alive. Yeah, that played a little weird on screen. I was a little confused uh, what was actually happening. I didn't realize that saving the capsule was priority one. After all, it's NASA. I figured there's capsules all over the bottom of the sea from the 60s. Early days of NASA, though. Like, they they still got to impress people (laughs) to get that funding. Did it feel like they didn't care about him? Or did it feel like, as I understand it, that they just thought he was protected and he wasn't? To me, the way it plays in the movie is that they care about that capsule more. That there's some irony going on that this piece of machinery is more important than this man. Which is kind of the theme of the whole film, I feel. Yep. Yeah, it's certainly how the wife feels. But when Betty gets to have her say, she's like, I'm not meeting Jackie. Like, I get a fridge full of food. Oh, such a great, 
so good. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Like, yeah, after Shepard goes, you get this whole White House thing. Oh, I talked to Jackie about all kinds of stuff. And yeah, Gus's wife's so <laughs> excited and gets the most pitiful parade. It's just like the military marching band. <laughs> Whoa, it's so sad, that marching band. That wouldn't even fly at my high school, that marching band. It was like an 80-year-old man leading them, too. He's like, not even active military. <laughs> yeah. Again, this movie's sense of humor really matches my own. I really am laughing a lot, which is strange because this is a drama, but I'm laughing a lot at this docudrama. So was this reception due to two factors? The fact that he blew the capsule, and at least that was a perception, or is it also a combo of the fact that, well, this, he's the second one. This is, you know, we already did the party for the first guy. This is the second one. It's not as big of a deal. I feel like if he had done, if, if he had not blown, if that hatch had not blown, I'll rephrase. I don't know if he blew the hatch. The hatch had not blown, he would have gotten every bit of love that Shepard did. It is truly because they don't know how to spin this into a heroic moment. Like, how embarrassing that you land and sink your capsule. Again, all of the things that were inside it, all the things they'd want to know. Like, you barely survive. You know, they have a press machine that makes it seem like victory. They do their best, but they're not going to emphasize this. And they always, you know, they got five more guys to go up. So why are we going to spend time on this? But it really does brand Grisham as a loser. And I just, yeah, these moments are so human. Like, again, this movie is as much about failure as it is about success. And boy, the sting of that in the Holiday Inn when they're trying to process what happens next and the rest of their lives. And that, yeah, basically, and again, in our knowledge, knowing that, oh, he'll get one more shot at this and die. Oof. Yeah, I'm feeling for Betty. I will say what... I want to pulse check from you guys because I feel like the first 90 minutes, like the first half of this film, I was so into it. And as it goes on for the second half, like there are great scenes, even this scene where they're at the Holiday Inn and that press comes rolling in, rolling over the bushes, climbing up the balcony to get to them. Like there are these funny moments. I do feel like it's lost some kind of momentum. Like we asked if Jaeger should be in this film. Well, I feel like it's stronger when the more he's in it, the second half kind of starts to lag for me. Yeah, he does pop back in here. It's worth pointing out that he's the one, he makes the connection that the reason why the astronauts, they should be getting shit for this. Like, this is the kind of thing that gets you thrown out of the program, but they can't label it a failure because Kennedy is now president and he just had Bay of Pigs. So it's a success whether it is or not. And so we can always turn to Jaeger to do the sour grapes thing. Because again, what's he really mad about? They didn't pick me. I'm deserving. I'm better than these guys. And they didn't pick me. Even though, again, I always want to stress, but you kind of rejected them too. If you had wanted it, if you had been less cool when they approached you at the bar, then maybe you could have been one of them. And there's a scene, one of those scenes of big, obvious symbolism that we've talked about being in this film. But again, it works for me, is that bar with all those dead pilots on there, it burns down. Do we know why? Like, I feel like it just cuts to it and it's on fire all of a sudden. I don't even remember reading that in the book. I had to skim the book. I'll be honest. I wasn't able to read everything as closely as I would like to, but that was not a big part of the book. I can say that. That may have been dramatic license for this movie. I think that they wanted to reflect the moment of Grisham and Jaeger. And this is, a you know, what you do in a movie script is before we have the climax success... You want to make feel like everything has gone wrong. And so this is sort of a all is lost moment that the bar and all those memories connected to all those pilots is just gone and vaporized. And we see Glennis, Chuck Yeager's wife, come to him and being like, you know what? If you're going to be self-pitying and live in the past, then I'm out of the door and you know you can't catch me. And so it's 
going to give him the inspiration to go for the stars one more time. And we're, of course, got, you know, John Glenn is going to be giving us the big, rousing, happy ending of putting an American in orbit. It's what we were trying to do, and we finally we do it here at this end. But yes, is this movie long? It definitely is. And Epic should feel a little bit weighty. No three-hour movie do you not look at your watch. Oh, no, I agree. And I, I go through maybe two hours before I start looking at the clock. Yeah, that feels right. I just feel like we get a whole lot more of the family drama in the second half where let's just focus on the program more. Yeah, we do have this. What it is is that John Glenn doesn't get to go up right away. He has a sit on the launch pad moment where they're waiting for bad weather to resolve. And it ends up becoming a moment about his wife's insecurities. You know, she's got this stutter. Yeah, which is still a great scene. Like, I'm complaining about these family moments, but this scene with LBJ getting so upset with her because she won't let him in, so good. Yeah, you could probably cut it for time. If someone said we need this movie to be two and a half hours, this scene goes. But I don't want to lose it. I mean, I think it's just what a hilarious idea that a future president of the United States and the head of this space program is going to be denied his PR moment. And he thinks, oh, I got all these magazines. They're going to record every word you say. Like, that's going to get him into the door. And of course, that's this woman's worst fear. She's a stutterer. She doesn't want them to know that. At this point, I am questioning, watching this movie, how this played to original audiences who most likely were around and aware of the Mercury program as it happened. And those audiences wouldn't have needed as much of a refresher on how things went with these launches, you know what I'm saying? But to us, many years later watching this, I do need that refresher. I Maybe even a first run-through for a lot of these launches. To Jacob's point, yes, I would have liked to see a little bit more of the behind-the-scenes stuff at NASA during this part than focusing on the family stuff. But you do have to wonder, back in 83, this is probably playing better to that audience. Yeah, and I I think you're right. You make a good point in the idea that people want to know what wasn't shown, what wasn't on TV. Yeah, we watched all of this on TV. I know that like there were these happy moments and everything seemed so seamless and to go well. Again, you knew Grisham's capsule sank, but it probably never played as tragic as this movie's going to make it. So this movie is very focused about showing you what you didn't see. But of course, now that we're, what, 30, 40 years beyond the release of this movie, you might want to refresh on what was also seen. Like, <laughs> I just don't know the history well enough. Right. I'm not familiar enough with this to feel comfortable only seeing the backstage and not the presentation. Well, and the fact that this great funny scene between LBJ and Glenn's wife ends up with, you know, it's a big heroic moment for Glenn. He's going to stand up against the vice president because he's going to protect his wife, which it's a heartstrings moment or whatever. I don't know. It's going a little bit too far with, oh, here's this great guy trying to make him, I guess, the hero of the film. Well, yeah, I guess you could make the argument it's less about Annie and more about him. I guess what's interesting about this is even though all the other guys apparently hated John Glenn, I do think he is the most maybe symbolically noble, but he's the character that any movie audience person is probably gravitating to. Him or Dennis Quaid. I don't know. Who were you focused on? I know it ain't Lance Hendrickson, (laughs) but was there a dude that you most wanted to watch? Was it Jaeger? Oh, if you're asking me who I most wanted to watch, yeah, it was Jaeger. Okay. But I, I figure Glenn was the hero of this film. Even though it's an ensemble cast, I thought he was going to be the one lionized the most. What about you, Justin? Yeah, pretty much the same way. You know, I mean, I feel like Ed Harris is commanding the screen the most, but his character is probably the least evocative in these parts of the movie. So, you know, and I think the movie almost wants us to be on Cooper's side at this point. 
But I don't know. I mean, I feel like at this point it is, I don't want to say falling apart into a bigger ensemble, but that's where we are. I mean, it's about the teamwork and how they've come together as a team and are working together as a unit. We see Cooper travel all the way to Australia just to do some satellite communication, which is crazy to my modern sensibilities. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, this is a time when there's no satellites. And I want to point out, too, that you're right, that that moment with Annie is a unifying moment for everybody. Because, yes, it is a moment for John Glenn to say, I'm sticking with my wife, and if she doesn't want LBJ to come into our living room... I back her. Okay, well, we're going to fire you then, and you're not going to go up at all. What happens? All the other dudes, again, the ones that probably would have loved to jump into his spot, are going to be like, nope, if you do that to him, we're not going to go up either. That, again, I think you're right. What we see here in this climax, with everyone participating at Capcom and what have you, is that they're all a part of it. They all feel a brotherhood. Not just these astronauts, but this is where, like, look, I love the artistry of the horse and the X-1 airplane. Like, when we get these aborigines, though, in Australia, I get it. They're going for something big here, connecting nature to the stars and ancient knowledge and all that. This does come off as a little pretentious. Well, or maybe even racist, because, I mean, the idea is that primitive. Yeah, I'm trying to be nice, but yes. <laughs> yeah, where we're seeing primitive people that have their own way of doing what these astronauts are doing. And isn't this part of a long history that goes all the way back to the dawn of man? Well, maybe you don't want to see Aborigines as Neanderthals. I agree. It's perhaps an insensitive moment. But I don't know. It's, there's something mystical about it that's kind of cool. And I do feel like John Glenn's chapter gets into... I don't know, the mystical elements of it. Certainly when he gets up there, they're going to portray it like it's a systems failure. And I think it's largely understood that that was the heating shield uh, sparks like flying all around. But they were seen again. It's worth pointing out that when Scott Carpenter went up, he also saw the fireflies. And some people will tell you this is an X-File. Some people will tell you we met aliens and they're hiding this. Yeah, I think I watched this on a 90s episode of Unsolved Mysteries or something where this was used as evidence <laughs> of aliens that John Glenn saw something in that capsule. I guess it was just Aborigines blowing sparks up there from their fire. Uh, you can interpret it however <laughs> you want, but I feel like this movie stops short of saying, yeah, this is Close Encounters. I really don't think it's a rival. I don't think we met and touched the other side here. But the phenomenon was found again. And actually, Carpenter got in trouble because he spent so much time trying to document it, you know, because they made John Glenn sound crazy that he burned up a lot of his fuel and almost didn't come back safe. But they don't include that in this movie. Scott Carpenter is, again, the guy that blew the ball up the highest. That was his one and only <laughs> attribute in this film. And how many times was Glenn supposed to orbit the Earth? He gets around three times, but then he's got to come down because of that heat shield. I think they wanted to at least match the Russians, which would have been all day. So I don't know the math of that. But it, yes, they abort early because they're worried about him. And they're even questioning about whether they tell them. And I love the fact that it's Shepard, his nemesis, that's like a pilot needs to know what's going on with his craft. Again, it goes back to that language. We're pilots. This is a spacecraft. We're not monkeys in a pod. You tell us what's going on. You treat us with humanity. And because they insisted on having a manual control, you know, remember, it was all going to be automated. If it were, John Glenn would be dead. 
It is only because he can switch to manual and he's able to pilot it down that he manages to survive this. While humming the Battle Hymn of the Republic, just like he does when he masturbates. Yeah, or on TV doing the game show thing. <laughs> but yes, he's, he's always been identified with knowing tunes and humming tunes. and He was humming that too with Cooper when they needed a sperm sample. And I love the fact that when we cut to his ticker tape parade, they're playing, you know, he's humming Battle Hymn of the Republic and then they're playing it as he's going through New York. And there's LBJ. He wanted to get in that door. He <laughs> He wanted to get that photo op with a wife and god damn it he is on the float with glenn and his wife he is not going to miss that picture opportunity he finally gets it and then we get yeah sort of a, an interesting end where again i don't know how you guys take it but to me it almost feels like the men feel like they're drifting into obsolescence like yes here's a party to say you've done all these great things but we're also ending this program. We're moving to Houston. We're starting up, you know, Apollo and larger man programs. And we're going to get to the moon. Kennedy has said that that's the real goal. So all of what you're doing here and all that you've done, as cool as it is, this is the last hurrah. And, they, you know, the fact that they cut in Jaeger and, you know, his last hurrah with his last fast jet, you know, mock speed attempt. All of that, to me, I don't know how you guys take it. You could see this as celebratory. It certainly is a party, but I see this as like, oh, they're throwing you away. I didn't read it like that, but I did read irony into it, that this was, it was about, like you've been saying, the PR. And it's not about these men who risked their lives and did super brave things. It's about making America look great to the Russians. And yeah, you get that... <laughs> Feather dance, like the woman with the feathers dancing for them all, intercut with Jaeger getting ready to take that plane. And like my daughter's just like, what are they going for here? But I do think like, here's these heroes, but they lost touch with their roots. Like Jaeger, he still wants to break records and still wants to touch the stars and do all that. Where these other ones, they're kind of celebrities now. I want to point out that music is Claire de Lune, again, the moon. I think they're really, to me, it feels like taunting, like, oh, yeah, the next thing is the moon here. Like, yeah, yeah you've done great, but the lights are off you now. And again, it's not probably totally clear here, but, you know, they're being told they're being given houses and furniture and all of this stuff. I mean, yeah, there's a hilarious scene earlier on where we find out they make $8,000 a year and they're going to make like 25000 a year off of life buying their story for the next three years. But what's happening here is they're actually moving all the operations away from Cape Canaveral, Florida. This is where Houston became the NASA, you know, Houston and we have a problem. And why did it happen? Because LBJ is a Texan and he's the head of the space program and he wants to make it about his state. And so, yeah, all these people are having to move to a place that they're not from. And again, they won't really be a big part of the missions in the future. And we even skip over some of them. I've mentioned what Carpenter did. Slayton, he had like a heart murmur or something and didn't get to go up at all. So one of these men didn't even get his mission. And Shira, I think Lance Hendrickson's character, they don't mention because it just went so well. There was no drama to it. He like did a great job and it, it was everything they wanted it to be. And well, that's boring. So yeah, let's end it with Dennis Quaid. He's the biggest star. He's the one that's going to launch and have the biggest career after all of this is over. We see him snoring on the launch pad. And he's going to go higher, farther, faster than anyone else. 22 orbits around the earth. And it's so weird that this film is like, and he was the greatest pilot ever. And roll credits. That's supposed to be like ironic, right? Because I feel like it's been making the argument that Jaeger was the greatest pilot. <laughs> or maybe every time you have a greatest pilot, it's only for a moment. I mean, I think people say name an astronaut. Probably the one that hasn't been topped is Neil Armstrong, right? Yes. The guy that walked on the moon is the dude. And all of these other ones, yeah, I've heard your name, but you're like 
Not the dude. Yeah, I just feel like Cooper, he is Tom Cruise from Top Gun in this film without the redemption of, I guess, shooting some enemies down at the end. He is just the hot dog the whole time, and it, it feels so weird that, yes, and he's our hero of the film. Roll credits. I think it's only just the sense that he's been telling everyone, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. And even in this, you know, when they're having that barbecue in Houston, for a moment he gets serious, and he tries to say what the movie's saying, of like, you know what? He almost said the right stuff. Yeah, yeah, the, all the right people, like the the greatest pilots are everyone that was on Pancho's Wall and Jaeger and everyone else. But in the end, he can't resist it. I'm about to go up. You're going to see the greatest. And for a short time, that is the record. 22 orbits around the Earth was as far as anyone had gone. But of course, we've now gone to the moon. Also, I think this ending is mirroring the same thing that's going on with Jaeger, because I think what he has found out is that they, I mean, it's explicit in the early in the movie where it's like, there's always somebody coming along to take your records and one up you. And the same thing's happening with the space program. I mean, we end it with Jaeger taking out a plane that's been decommissioned before they can even fly it. And he kind of breaks protocols to go do his thing. And in a way, that's the same thing that's going to happen to all of these astronauts. They're not the ones that are going to the moon. They're the hot guys right now, but there's always somebody right behind you that's going to go higher, further, farther. He gets like a little taste there, right? Because the blue sky like kind of fades away. It's like, yep, we'll give you space for a second. You went as far as you're going to go. You get to touch it too. That's how his flight simulator was. I'm telling you. I flew an SR-71 Blackbird into space on that. Okay. All right. He's an astronaut too. At least that's the, my takeaway from this. But in the end, he comes crashing to Earth. He survives. And he has to live with that. Like all of them have to live with the fact that they were the greatest and then they weren't. And I feel like, yeah, maybe that is the hardest lesson for these guys. You know, they tried so hard to be the best, to not be the best, to live and watch someone else take that crown is obviously tragic. But for the moment, they get to be that. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of why I'm glad that we got to watch this movie because history will remember them. And I think what's so unique about this is that they're being celebrated. It isn't like a downer of an ending. It is no. an upbeat. It's Dennis Quaid smiling at you. I mean, that man's got a grin. Like, he smiles. We all smile. So I feel like there's uplift here. It's so unique to feel at the same time this mirror trick on the reverse side of things. We've seen the failure and the triumphs of the space program in equal dimension. And however you want to focus it is up to you. But I really think it's unique to have something so inspiring and tragic at the same time. To end on a note that sounds both sad and happy is a real talent, a credit to Philip Kaufman's filmmaking skills. But let's find out if we think it is a tragedy or a success. Jacob, Justin, what do you think of the right stuff? Justin. Yeah, you know, having never sat through this movie, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. I mean, like I said, it's always kind of been part of pop culture. I mean, that title, The Right Stuff, is something that I would say 95% of the people on this planet have heard of this movie, if not seen it. So I was kind of expecting something closer to Top Gun with a lot of machismo and a lot of this and a lot of that. And I was pleasantly surprised to find out that this was not a dry docudrama but it was a docudrama with a lot of history to it and a lot of heart to it and a good sprinkling of humor that I was definitely not expecting. I ended up enjoying this movie more than I thought I would, not knowing what it was going in. I would say this, if you're somebody closer to our age and you haven't watched this movie before, I would recommend maybe taking in a documentary 
about the Mercury program before going into this, because that's kind of what I wish I would have done. I wish I would have had this history on board and then got to see some of this behind the scenes type of stuff. I think it would have meant more to me. But if you're, you know, older and you probably have seen this already, but if it somehow just skipped past you and you hadn't, but you were around for the Mercury program, I think this is a movie that you can enjoy just sitting down and watching for three hours. So yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not a movie I ever thought that I would come back to since it felt so very much of the time. But yeah, I mean, a few nitpicks here and there. I wish they would have kind of visually aged some of our characters to help draw that on screen. I feel like Chuck Yeager was in this movie over a span of 20-some years and never aged a day on screen. I did have trouble keeping track of time because of that. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, outside of that, I think it's a well-written, it's a well-filmed, nice little film that, yeah, I would give a happy little green arrow to. Jacob. This film really surprised me. I'm there with you, Justin. Like going in, I thought dry docudrama, The Last Emperor, Gandhi. Not that they're bad movies, just that like they're long and a lot of talking. You know how that goes. And that's what I was expecting with this. Like, yeah, we're going to get some shots in space maybe, but it's going to be a lot of sitting around and debates and engineers. Like, how do we make this rocket do that? Like, that was my expectation. And what I get is it's got a great sense of humor, a a real point of view. Like, it understands the irony and and the heroism. Like, it balances that and it shows how crazy... Here's the thing to do. If if you didn't grow up during the Cold War, if you didn't grow up in the 80s, like, go see what Americans, like, what we were worried about and and what the panic and all that, because, yeah, I feel like this really tapped into that with an ironic sense. Like, even though we were still in the Cold War when this was made, like, it feels like something that would have been made after he knew what the outcome was. But, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by the craft of this film. (laughs) The fact that one of the best scenes in this is a a joke about a guy pissing his pants, and it's, like, so brilliantly edited and funny. Like, wow. So many moments surprised me. Like, yes, there are problems with pacing, because it is so long, and around the two-hour mark, that's when I started looking at my clock. I'm like, okay, let's get rid of some of this family drama, and let's get to space again. And But overall, yeah, I strong recommend for this film. Great writing, the editing, the way it's shot. I think it got, like, all those sound and those technical awards, but she probably got screenplay, too. Like, great film. Watch this one. Yeah, I mean, I... I don't know if I've ever seen Terms of Endearment. I always think of it as the movie that made my mom cry, but I feel like this probably was the best picture of 1983. It certainly is a surprising movie for its time because Reagan era, just before Top Gun, you're expecting a different kind of movie than you get. It would have been really easy to make that movie and make it good. I think it could be a very good, sentimental, patriotic movie, and sometimes is, but the magic of this movie is that Philip Kaufman, with all of his skill in writing the screenplay and directing and all the technicians that aid to the editing of this movie, again, all the choices that are made, they retain the playful wit of Tom Wolfe's prose. And it really helps you see that the history of the space program, like all history, is fraught with both failure and success. And it's not going to forget failure to celebrate the success. This is a movie for people who think history is boring, who, like me oftentimes think if you're reenacting a historical moment, that's a TV movie. That's something stilted that they do just for to commemorate something. But it's not something dramatically interesting. And this movie is 
very dramatically interesting. And what I admire most about it is that it doesn't, it still calls these seven men heroes, but they're not heroes because they have the right stuff to, to do anything. It was mostly because they managed to survive a trial and error process of chaos and fatalism that like, it's a miracle, right? It's a miracle they didn't kill anybody during the Mercury program. And I feel like it's respectful to American exceptionalism while still giving plenty of floor space to failure and people just winging it, uh, just grabbing a broom handle and trying to make it work and yeah, nearly killing themselves and others. I love all of that. It, it becomes a black comedy because of that. And I also just love seeing the expansiveness of what they're going to call a hero. It's every test pilot. It's not just these seven guys. It was everyone on that wall. It's Jaeger. It's Kennedy, who it's worth pointing out, didn't live to see his program go to the moon. But like because he cared about the propaganda and the politics, that's partly why this happened as well. And the wives, they made their own sacrifices. They had their own crosses to bear. And they deserve acclaim for braving these impossible circumstances. Everyone is a hero here. And that's what I love about this movie. It's a grand spectacle. It's funny. It's stirring, heartbreaking, surprising. I did not think a true story could compete with Star Wars or the sci-fi entertainments of the 80s. But I think it's every bit as ripping a yarn as the Lucas universe and a very solid recommend. And I think, Justin, what I hear you saying is I would like a little refresher. I would like a little bit of that dry docudrama TV movie. Disney Plus does have something called The Real Right Stuff, which is a 90-minute, let me give you the footage of what we have, what was presented to the public I think that would be a good companion. If you wanted to watch this, I did for this viewing, and I found it very informative. They'll even help deepen some of these moments, and you'll get to the fuller story in only 90 minutes more. It's a three-hour movie, so if you got four and a half hours, I think it's worth your investment. But don't bother with the Disney Plus show. Going to end on that one. Really? Yeah, Disney has tried to make this a series, and you can see how it could be. Easily. <laughs> they can go beyond the Mercury program, and there's so much about the interpersonal relationships. Some of these seven guys, Lance Hendrickson, who are you? This show will explore that, but I don't know. I just want to put it out there. My mom used to watch a show called Army Wives. Does this ring a bell with anyone? It was like a soap opera about all these couples on, on a base, and it really became this sudsy who's sleeping with who and men punching each other out for looking at their wives. You won't even know that there's a space race going on in the <laughs> Disney Plus Right Stuff show. It is all about that drama. And no judgment. If you like gossip and that kind of soap opera, have at it. Maybe you will enjoy this. But none of the sense of humor from this film? Definitely does not have the sensibilities of this movie or Tom Wolfe. And again, is very concerned. If what you cared about most was the moralizing that John Glenn was doing about these men cheating on their wives, this is the show for you. Okay, it truly is a Disney show then. <laughs> the Real Housewives of Cape Canaveral. Very much about that quality. Yes, I would say that's what it is. And they only get so far. The season finale is with Shepard going up. And that's sort of the end. So I don't know if there's going to be a season two, but I know I ain't watching it. It just didn't hold my interest. And mom, who liked Army Wives, she watched it too, and she didn't like it either. So I'm not even sure it serves the audience that it was catering to. But I think our audience is Clark Fisher. He's the one that donated. People should understand this. Patrons, when they donate at a certain level, they get to say what we watch. Clark, this was your pick. 
What did you think of the show? How do you think it all turned out? Did we get the right stuff right? Oh, definitely. I really enjoyed everybody's comments, and it sounds like all three of you pretty much saw the movie that I saw. This is one that I come back to pretty regularly, and that's hard to do with a three-hour mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. here. And you see different things each time, and you know it's kind of interesting. That was 1983, I guess it was made. They did so much with practical effects, no CGI, no green screen, that mostly holds up really well today. Mostly. There is like that one shot. Yeah, there's <laughs> a few shots, but yeah, I agree. Mostly, like for 1983, I was impressed that it mostly held up. And was anyone thinking about the latest Fashion and the Furious where Tej and Roman are like <laughs> flying a car in orbit around there? I, there was a shot that made me, you know, God help me, I had to watch that last Fast and Furious. No, I don't think about those films when I don't have to, Stuart. But yes, 95% of this is a technical marvel. And then there's a couple shots that you wish didn't weren't here. Yeah. No, the car in orbit, that's the wrong stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that whole movie was the wrong stuff, but yeah. So Clark, you'd said earlier that you grew up in this era. So does this movie hit those notes of nostalgia for you in the right place? Well, it really does. I mean, what I grew up with as a kid and all you got was the PR, the positive stuff and seeing these guys as real people which of course they all were with their warts and everything else i think that's really refreshing that you could blend those two in a movie like this that's dramatic and funny as hell that's pretty amazing artistry and again it's on my mind just a couple weeks ago with william shatner and the idea that we're probably going to see a lot more of this now that this space race has moved away from the politics of governments and now is the passion projects of the rich and famous like we're getting a whole new space age and a space race and it's it's all about i don't know maybe within my lifetime clark would you get in a capsule if you get presented with the option if the price is right and the ticket is there would you want to take a ride Oh, absolutely. And I think there's actually a website right now where one of these organizations, you can sign up to be on a list for a one-way trip to Mars. a quarter of a million dollars to do, too. To Mars. You got $250,000. They're thinking long-term. Oh, my goodness. Sign up. Okay. Okay. And I think my wife might not like that. And she didn't (laughs) want me to jump out of an airplane either. But uh, when I was a kid... When all this was going on, I had my parents gave me a um, life-size mercury capsule made out of cardboard for Christmas that I ended up crashing. But boy, it was a lot of fun. (laughs) And it's funny you should say Mars because that's where we're going to next. It's not really a retrospective. If it were a retrospective, you're right. We'd have to do First Man, Apollo 13. You got to do Apollo 13, yeah. (laughs) We're not doing that retrospective as fun as that may be. But we are going to take a trip to Mars with Matt Damon because there is another patron that has asked us to cover the Ridley Scott movie, The Martian. And so I thought it would be a good twofer to follow up the right stuff with The Martian. That's what we're going to cover next Tuesday. Hopefully you'll join us for that. And if you're looking for more horror, if you're missing Halloween, this Friday we begin our Gold Level series with Paranormal Activity. Jacob and Arnie and I are going to get back to found footage and see... What everyone's talking about, because I don't think any of us are experts on this franchise. I've never seen any of them. No. Yeah, I have saw one of them, and it was a while ago. So, Paranormal Activity, there are seven movies. One just premiered on the Paramount Streaming Network. We're covering that one in the six that came out theatrically through Christmas and into January. That's our new final series for fall 2021. Hope you can join us. Go to the website and find out all the details. 
So, Clark, thank you very much for donating. And Justin, Jacob, thank you for joining me. We're going to head back to space and go all the way to Mars next week. And until then, we'll be chasing that demon. The Mercury program was over. Four years later, astronaut Gus Grissom was killed, along with astronauts White and Chaffee, when fire swept through their Apollo capsule. But on that glorious day in May 1963, Gordo Cooper went higher, farther, and faster than any other American. 22 complete orbits around the world, he was the last American ever to go into space alone. And for a brief moment, Gordo Cooper became the greatest pilot anyone had ever seen. Thank you for listening to this now-playing podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. Boy, that was fun night. That was really exciting. And special thanks to Clark Fisher for his support of our show and for picking the right stuff for our hosts to review. Get your ass over here and have a drink. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Well, they show up very well. And uh, thank everybody for turning them on, will you? Want more reviews like this one? In the archives section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. We have film up. We'd just like to run it by you and see if we can stimulate something. On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You keep thinking they got the right stuff. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Each man here has volunteered to do a job. Each man here is devoting long hours of training to prepare for it. And doing many things above and beyond the strict call of duty. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. Funding. That's what makes your ships go up. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. No bucks. No Buck Rogers. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. And we know more about what we need to fly this thing than anybody else. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. Our Germans are better than their Germans. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when they're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. I agree with those who say that we could launch a pop. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I'm tired of being forthright, gracious, and magnanimous. Yeah. Associate produced by Jason Latham. What can be going through a man's mind at this point? Now Playing is edited by Santiago and Arnie. We're stable, well-adjusted, attentive, persevering. Now Playing credits read by Brock. I don't think we're saying anything new here. I think we're just saying the same things that need to be said again and again with fierce conviction. 
The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. I did not do anything wrong! The hatch just blew! It was a glitch! It was a, a technical malfunction! Why in hell would anyone believe me? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Permission granted to wet your diapers any time, son. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I don't want anything to put this program in a bad light. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Oh Lord, what a heavenly light. The original scripts left out Chuck Yeager, and the movie was going to be directed by the guy that did Rocky. Or maybe it was going to be directed by the guy. <laughs> oh, Arnie, we could hear you now. Yeah, that, that definitely the dogs sounds are like barking. Him. He probably doesn't even know. I'm going to touch. That's him. probably it. He probably has to leave the recording up. Yeah, let me. Mic. He could definitely mute his mic. Can we mute it remotely? I cannot. If let me. Can. Let me just. Mute your mic. Your dog's barking. Hopefully he gets that. Yeah, yeah I think we're, kind of at, we're, we're, we're on the launching pad and at standstill until the dog stops. Yeah, a delay. <laughs> and I love that Cooper, Randy... Not Randy Quaid, right? It's uh, Dennis. <laughs> Wrong Quaid. Big difference <laughs> between Randy and Dennis, in yeah. my opinion. <laughs> yes, I know. And there's a great scene with Cooper, Dennis Quaid's character. Like, yeah, I just feel like Cooper. He is Tom Gunn from. He is Tom Gunn. He is Tom Cruise from Top Gun in this film. Without the redemption of like 